0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, sociologist and historian Harvey J. Kay returns to discuss the newest edition of his 1984 book, The British Marxist Historians. Harvey will explain the important contributions a group of English scholars made to both Marxist analysis and the study of history in the 20th century we'll be delving into how historians like Rodney Hilton, Christopher Hill, E.P. Thompson, and Eric Hobsbawm challenged historiographic orthodoxies by focusing on the contributions of the masses to history rather than the ruling class. All that and much, much more on this edition of Parallax Views. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that we haven't spoken with in a while, uh, so I'm glad to have him back on now. He has a new edition of his book out, British Marxist Historians. Harvey J.K., how are you doing today, Harvey?
1: Well, all I can tell you is the last few weeks after a very relatively mild winter became like snow, what's the word they developed for like snow apocalypse? It was snow, you know, snowmageddon. And it, But today is absolutely gorgeous to look. It's cold, but I'm looking outside, everything is white. And as I told some friends recently, so there's only one advantage to snowstorms in March. We don't have to put up with all the graying piles of snow shoved aside by the uh, plows. So it's a prettier March than usual, but I'd love to see spring in April or May ASAP.
0: So... With the latest edition of your book, the British Marxist historians, which initially the, the first edition came out in the early eighties, right, like eighty
1: four, the winter of 84, 85. right, 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 exactly. right. yeah, so, I, I, I'm an I'm it's a long time since yeah.
0: So the place I wanted to start with before we get into some of the British Marxist historians like Thompson and Hills and others, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, the importance of. Looking at these historians and their contributions, because I think there's this idea uh, that, oh, you know, the the Marxist lens is sort of outdated now. You know, it's it's too economically deterministic. Uh, you know, the right wingers will claim that, uh, oh, Marxists, uh, they're everywhere in academia. But really, it doesn't seem like that. Uh, from my experience <laughs> of academia, it seems like in a lot of ways uh, we it's almost viewed as a thing of the past. Why do you think it's important though that we revisit uh marxism and the analysis that marxists and marxist historians offer us?
1: Well, let's start with let's start with a fundamental fact and I think it's smacking us once again in the face just this past several days. We still live in the age of capital. But it's a capitalism which right now it it it's not exactly the capitalism triumphant that it clearly was becoming in the course of the 19th century and in the 20th century but it is a cap- it is capitalism nonetheless and the other thing about it is that after the many years between say the 1930s and the ni- early 1970s when it seemed as if because of the new deal later the great society the emergence of really significant powerful sizable labor movements that somehow or other we could people might have thought well we live in a mixed economy now or capitalism has been tamed by liberals and and labor unionists well what we've seen for the last at least 45 years maybe longer is that capitalism became decidedly untamed capitalism i mean neoliberalism that trend that emerges in the course of the 70s and really rules in the case of the 1980s and even into the 90s and beyond. Neoliberalism is an is a kind of it's an acceleration of, of capitalism. And in any case, it represented a long, multi-decade war on the democratic achievements of the 30s to the early 1970s. So one of the reasons that I well There are a couple of reasons I was eager to see the book out again. And when a publisher showed interest, I I, I said, for sure. One is because, well, every author thinks their work is probably worth repeating, but that isn't the the key thing. The key thing was, is that to really understand capitalism, it's not simply a matter of the story of finance. It's not simply the story of economic entrepreneurialism. It's not simply the story of accumulation of wealth. It's the story, in many ways, of class struggle. And the class struggles are not uniquely capitalist, as the historians revealed. You know, there were class struggles prior to capitalism. But there is something about capitalism which, on the one hand, denies that there's any kind of class struggle underway. But at the very same time, all we have to do is pay closer attention than the media usually allows us to see things. And we'll see the degree to which there's class struggle. I mean, it takes diverse forms. Think about, for example, Chris Small's battles, I mean, the battle of, of Amazon workers, the battles of Starbucks workers may not be the kind of struggles that we, that we were witnessed in the 19th century by rural and urban workers against ever-growing capitalist enterprise. But sure as hell, these workers are organizing, trying to reclaim some of the decency that, that work might involve, trying to increase their wages, trying to get better benefits, trying to literally get a voice that supposedly they already had ever since the 30s. So, and they're organizing against capitalists. I mean, that's basically. And then what do we see? Or it isn't simply organizing. It's the fact that the likes of Bezos and Howard Schultz, and, and those are just the two best known names today, perhaps. Those folks are doing everything in their power to break the, to break the worker's solidarity, to bust the union drives. So the thing is that we'd be making a, a terrible mistake Labor unionists, on the one hand, academics of a of a liberal, left, radical, socialist persuasion, whatever it might be, and indeed everyday citizens who want to know what can we do about the world in which we live, they should pay attention and make better sense, maybe even of their own in, in endeavors. I mean, quite often people don't realize, and I think one of the one of the beauties of the British Marxist historians' work is that it asks us to see class struggle in its diverse forms whether it takes whether it's resistance or rebellion or in historically fascinating moments and quite ugly at times and beautiful at others revolution so and the historians would you know when we read the work that they did say on the peasantry of England in the in the middle ages or the early modern agrarian and artisan well agrarian and in the cities or towns the artisans and craftsmen of the say 17th and 18th into the 19th centuries we come to see the diversity of the struggles that have been underway but also just how how indeed how overwhelmingly difficult it is quite often to prevail which also then makes the 20th century all the more fascinating because there were truly times where workers did prevail and though we may not have created workers' democracies, believe me, to create vast, I'm repeating myself, big labor movements in the course of a depression of all things, and then to have one of every three workers in a labor union in the 1950s, and then to see public employees organizing in the 1960s into the early 1970s, we have to ask ourselves, well, now that we're seeing these movements around the country... Indeed are we at this sort of moment where we're going to start reclaiming the the social democratic possibilities the industrial democratic possibilities I mean you know it's this is a strange moment in which we live I'm, Antonio Gramsci the Italian Marxist talked about you know we're, it talked about as if we're in an interregnum you know in his own day in the 30s but right we the live in the of time fascism. of
0: monsters right
1: well that's indeed yeah and um and then you know, and then think about the degree to which there's this. Sorry, I won't go off into the a critique of contemporary capitalism, which I was about to do, and understand that that I'm not. All I know is that whenever we might imagine that things aren't like they were in the past, well, they're not like they were in the as they were in the past. But every so often, we're sort of smacked in the face and reminded that there are elements that link us to those struggles in the past. But here's another reason, and this is this is we'll get into this in a bit. Another reason that it was important to understand them is that there is always the tendency to try to suppress memory on the by the by the powers that be, and one of the the, key the ruling features, class, yeah, yes, the ruling class powers that be exactly. So understand that what these historians were about was yes to try to understand the history of capitalism. They're trying to understand the history of class struggles. They were trying to understand and if you like, rewrite history from the bottom up to reclaim the struggles and lives of working people in every moment of the past. But the other thing is this, not simply because the past is there, but also because, and I I say this a lot, and I may have said this to you when we talked about my other books in the past, I think we fail to consider the degree to which struggles of the past leave a legacy that we're not often aware of. And by, in essence, if we want to understand our own anxieties, our own yearnings, and make better sense of them, we might want to understand the degree to which our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, generations before us, sort of afford a certain dynamic, an, an imperative, a radical, a democratic imperative in human experience, and that we're perhaps feeling those things that we're not necessarily fully conscious of.
0: So when we talk about these British Marxist historians, we're talking about uh, such figures as Rodney Hilton, Maurice Staub, Christopher Harrell, Eric Hobsbawm, and E.P. Thompson, among others. Among others, Uh, right. So in regards to all these thinkers, how do they represent an evolution in the 20th century of Marxist thought? And maybe how do they differ from other uh, schools of Marxist thought?
1: That's a, that's a good question, okay? And let me take it up in a twofold way. The first thing I want to say is that they, they really saw it as their duty, as they were indeed members in the 1930s into the 40s, up until 1956, when the Soviets, well, Stalinist crimes were fully revealed and also... The Soviet Union acted in a Stalinist fashion by invading Hungary, which was seeking to set up an independent or autonomous kind of socialism in Europe, um, which is when these these men left the party. Almost all of them, not all did. But the thing is that on on the one hand, on the one hand, as as Marxists, it they were educated by an older cohort, a woman named Donna Tor, a fellow named A.L. A- a- also known as Leslie Morton, okay? They were taught to think in terms that, number one, history does matter. And two, since it does matter, let's make sure that people are aware of how history is made. And it's not only made from the top down. So that that was imperative for them, okay? And, And it wasn't always the case that Marxists before them studied that. But if you want to root it in one particular line out of if you like the Marxist tradition, it's Karl Marx and, and Friedrich Engels' Communist Manifesto. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. That clearly is the hook. In That's their grand hypothesis, you might say, to explore that question for England in the Middle Ages and increasingly a, a larger th- than uh, English scale, the British story of the 19th into the 20th centuries. Now, having said that, there was another element to it. So it wasn't only because they were driven by this sort of Marxian commitment, it was also the fact that the profession into which they were heading, not just in England, not just in Britain, not just anywhere in the world alone in one place, but history was generally written by what we think of as scholars and academics. And Scholars and academics, let's face it. Let's go back 18th, 19th, into the 20th century. Who were historians? Well, they came from, at the, at, at the least, they usually came from middle-class backgrounds, quite often from prominent backgrounds, because to write history meant you needed time to do research and to write. So generally, the history that was written was being written by folks who generally saw history from the top down or from the plateau of the elites, whether it was an economic, a political, or, or a cultural elite. So to them, this this struggle was was twofold. In one sense, it was to, well, I'll come back to. In one sense, it was to change the way in which history is studied and written. Okay, but now to come back into the Marxist tradition, it's also the case that they were taught by a again some older scholars not to see Marxist historiography as something that should be base and stru- superstructure. That is the economy and then politics and culture sitting on top of all of that that was too passive it was structural but it wasn't dynamic it 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 ignored human agency and what they wanted to restore to history was the sense of human agency both because they wanted to get the story right but also because they wanted to they wanted to enable other people to realize the degree to which they too are capable of making history that they don't that they're not marginal to the story. History from the bottom up, right? That's the expression. So when I came into into social history in the 1970s, I was an undergraduate in the 60s but I wasn't really doing that kind of history uh, until until my graduate school years. And the two terms one was history from below and history from the bottom up. And I always figured that they meant the same thing but history from below seemed to be the polite way of putting it because this is going to sound too cute i okay history from the bottom up sounded like it was from the ass up you know it was that kind of thing so a lot of a lot of people tended to use the expression history from below the main thing also and this was important neither did they wish to write history of the bottom they did not want to write a, hist- a social and cultural history of working people that ignored the process of exploitation and oppression. And it was that exploitation and oppression, which of course drove working people to assert themselves, either either to assert their humanity or to assert the possibility of of making history different than it was.
0: So in terms of delving into some of these different thinkers, I was really interested in talking about a few specific ones, like the historian (laughs) Eric uh, uh, Hobsbawm, who I was familiar with his work because... Uh, he provided some interesting perspectives on how we can understand uh, the Luddites um, and, and uh, yeah, the movement right. of Luddism. Uh, maybe you could describe how someone like Hobsbawm can provide us a different perspective on how we understand history and issues throughout history.
1: Okay, so let, let's take the case of the Luddites or machine breakers, Okay. And Thompson, too, was working, both Thompson and Hobsbawm, and others were working on these kinds of questions. Just so everyone knows, these young men were usually undergraduates in the 1930s. And some of them came from prominent families. Some of them came from decidedly lower middle class and, and middle class families. And they attended one way or the other, by scholarship or otherwise, Oxford and Cambridge universities, which was very elite kind of thing. Okay, And yet they became communists. During the war, the general thing for them to do was to go into the military service. So, hosbom served in the Education Corps, Thompson served in the tanks, um, Hilton was, I think, in tanks or I forget right now, but they all served in some way. Christopher Hill, who was a bit older than the rest actually served in the foreign office, what they call you know, the British State Department during those years. And when they came back from the war, they organized themselves within the Communist Party generally as the Communist Party historians group from like 1946, 47, all the way through to 56 when, again, the Soviets invaded Hungary. And then there was a departure from the party by key figures, uh, E.P. Thompson and others who left who did not give up being Marxists and socialists, but they, they ceased to call themselves communists and tended to call themselves socialists at this point. Um, but anyhow, to come back to the thing you asked. So in this period of the late 1940s, when they're exploring, and many of them are actually working on their dissertations at that time at in various places and seeking a way into teaching or scholarship. And the question, the question of the Luddites is interesting because the presumption was that machine breakers were simply criminals okay that and that was they were breaking the machines as a criminal act in protest okay and what they most historians before them generally failed to appreciate and there were those who did who paid attention but the overwhelming majority marginalized them they were workers who were on their way out these artisan workers on their way out okay and 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 why were they machine breakers well what we would call today, the entrepreneurial class. Okay. The folks who are these factory owners, large workshop owners, believed that if they could introduce machines, they would not only get more production, but they would have a greater control over the workers because keep in mind, this is a classic thing. This came up a lot in the late 19th century studies here in the United States in America. That is in American history. Bosses do not want to have to depend on workers they want to command workers and as long as you had craftsmen artisans working your enterprise then you had to depend on their knowledge and their skills right so if you introduce machinery that seemed to simplify and routinize okay em- uh, employment industri- industrialization as it's often called then it would also it, it would literally create a workforce that could, might be more interchangeable Okay. You don't like somebody, you fire them, blah, 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 right? Well, so the assumption was that machine breakers were just smashing machines out of anger. But keep in mind that the machine breakers, it was illegal to organize unions. Okay. So this was a kind of underground activity, a collective underground activity. You break the machines, it would slow down the process. Now, the vantage point 50 and 100 years later, it might seem futile. The machines were going to be introduced. But for those who were being discharged or threatened by these machines, this was at least viewed as a way of threatening the bosses, the owners, Okay, that they can't get away with this. And in fact, there's good evidence to believe may well have slowed things down. There's another simple, similar example away from the towns and the cities like Manchester and Salford and, and so on. There were the there was the captain swing movement in East Anglia, which were agricultural workers who would set fire to the barns in which the machines, you know, the, the agricultural machinery was being um, housed, and it was again presumed that this was just uh, in, by many people probably presumed to be madness. Well, why are they doing this? You know, this is criminal activity but it was viewed as a way collectively of protesting the introduction of the machineries and according to the work by Hobbs, Eric Hobsbawm and his very dear friend and an equally great scholar and a fabulous teacher George Rude okay another okay and Rude worked on France and on on English history and i would just for so people know i was very very close to all of these historians but especially to George Rude and i'm the executive um, um What's they called the executor of his literary estate. So I'm deeply deeply involved with the book that they jointly wrote, Captain Swing. And in this thing, whereas in the cities, they would sign, Cap, you know, Ned Ludd was here. You know, Ned Ludd was here. They would in this countryside, it was Captain Swing was here. And what Hobsbawm and Ruday discovered was it actually did slow down the introduction of the machinery. It was an express. Now, look, it didn't, it didn't, bring an end to industrialization, okay? It didn't radically transform the countryside, but at least it placed these agriculture workers on record as saying, you can't get away with everything, watch it. In fact, it also would be a warning. Keep this in mind. I mean, the one other warning is right now we're attacking the machinery. We haven't attacked you yet. So
0: it's really interesting to me. I think when, and this sort of goes back to my first question, but I think sometimes people will think uh, Marxist historian Uh, Does that mean that they're going to be dogmatic um, in their approach to things? or Are they dogmatically Marxist? Um, But how did these historians maybe break from both uh, certain dogmas of Marxist thought and uh, dogmas of how historiography was done within academia?
1: Okay. So let me, I'll start with the question again in the Marxist terms. A lot of Marxists tended to look at very, very scans, very, very, they looked at them with suspicion because they weren't, Really trying to prove this high grand hypothesis based and stru- superstructure. They were going, they were looking at what Robert Brenner, the American historian, who was really the best, if you like, the best writer on this whole question of transition from feudalism to capitalism, standing on the shoulders of the British Marxists. Brenner argued that really what they're doing is they're looking at the relations of surplus extraction, the social. Relations of production, and the social relations of production, which some which are often simplified as property relations, don't and not exactly property relations. It's the question of, I think, Rodney Hilton put it, who rides whom and how, or you know, who's living off of the labor of the other and who has to suffer the consequences and try to resist it. So what they were doing is they were going, if you like, to these kinds of social relations, and. In doing so, they were challenging this fundamental Marxist presumption of base and superstructure, which, by the way, going back to my years studying Marxian scholarship, Marx was less dogmatic about base and superstructure than maybe Engels. So the term historical materialism, I believe, is derived from Engels. Okay. If you look again, you look at Marx, he's, 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 he's more the poet. Engels is like you know he's eager to create a kind of science of history, and Marx was always wanting to be a poet anyhow. And it's that that kind of difference. And, and I'll just point out that in the case of E. P. Thompson, he would have rather have been a poet than a historian. He always wanted to be a poet, and he actually did write poetry along the way. And and in Hobsbawm's case, he he as much as he loved the study of history, his other passion was jazz. And he was a jazz critic for many years for the new Statesman magazine, I guess it was, under the pseudonym Francis Newton. And um, so, and, and I'll never forget Rodney Hilton, the medievalist in the group, who who really took me under his wing when I was doing the work to try to direct me properly as I was pursuing it. He asked me one. It was very nice. He, uh, he had a dinner party. After my book was published, I was back visiting in England. And the dinner party brought together Thompson Hill and Rodney himself and their partners, their spouses, their wives. And half the dinner conversation, I'm exaggerating, of course, but it seemed that they all jumped on my case because I did not read detective fiction. Okay. But but that was to show you how they had these other these other interests. In fact, another historian of the group, very central to the group, but he didn't really write history from the bottom up. He was much more interested in history of imperialism and ruling classes, and his name was Victor Kiernan, known as V.G. Kiernan. Like Hobsbawm, an encyclopedic mind he had. He knew, seemed to me he knew everything, or at least something about everything. Um, He, he, he once, I once said to him something about, I mentioned the word philosophy. And he wrote back and he said, I'm quoting him, I believe, everything philosophers have written have ever written can be reduced to a half a page of good stuff. And I and I and then I confessed to him that I that I didn't quite agree. And then I further confessed when he was asking me about how I read this English writer or this English writer. I confessed that I didn't read literature very often unless I was in a class that required it. And he 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 I could hear the anger in his voice all the way from Edinburgh, Scotland, when he replied, when he said, a historian without a, without literature is like a man without a shadow and i was reduced to being a man without a shadow i mean i've read literature and i've read spanish literature and i've read european literatures and latin american but i was not i was not a big reader of literature i just i was a history reader so okay so then how did they respond well this is interesting a lot of folks in the british historical profession would have loved to have completely dismissed them and in fact, in some cases, they were readily dismissed. There's no doubt about it. However, what well, so they were dismissed because they were seen as
0: taking a radical,
1: yeah, uh, I mean, they were you know they approach. were Marxists. They were Marxists. Right. The, the, the British university system after World War II in the what we think of as the age of McCarthyism did not have McCarthyism in the same way it did in the United States. I mean, you could literally be just. Nobody worried that you could just be denied a position or chucked out of a position if investigated. In Britain, they were able to secure positions, but not all of them. And it's and it was the case that if if there was a, that you they will use this term blackballed. You could if they if somebody you know knew you were a Marxist and even worse a communist, you were blackballed. George Rudé, he's a good example. George Rudé was a bit older than the others. He was more like Christopher Hill's age. He got an undergraduate degree in I'm forgetting now, maybe literature for all I can remember, but during the war he served in the in the London Fire Brigade and he he studied for a history degree while he was doing that. and then he went on to do a, a PhD and he won a major prize for an article and another prize for a dissertation. but because but he never got a university position in england until many years later when he was offered something in scotland of all places in fact he was teaching in, in a public high school for some years and he was actually fired from one for at least from one job because somebody discovered he was a communist they fired him so eventually as he was publishing significant work he took a job in australia which was like being exiled in in some ways from the british historical profession And then he became world famous for his work, and he was offered a position in Scotland, but his wife really preferred Australia, so they moved back. The point was that it was clear that there were those who were going to try to keep them out, okay? They were just going to try to keep them out. Um, But it was also the case that Christopher Hill became the master of Balliol College at Oxford, which was, but as I said that to someone one day, they said, but he was never offered a professorship. Uh, oh, okay, true, okay. I mean, so it's hard to know in detail about a lot of these things, and I didn't get into their biographies in depth. What I know about their life stories was more because I came to know them and and they would relate these stories to me. But then this is crucial. here's okay, one more thing: they decided they were not they were not going to write just a Marxist history. They were writing history. So they organized and they recruited non-Marxists to join them in founding a journal called Past and Present. And that became one of the three one of the most important history journals in the world, Past and Present. They were the found they were at the core but there were other historians like Lawrence Stone who was not a Marxist from Princeton University and others and then they brought in a whole variety of folks. It's not as important today as it once was, because I don't think any academic journals are as important today as they probably once were. I mean, the profession has taken such a beating, but it is the case that if you could get an article published in past and present, you were pretty much going to make your way into the profession. You were going to get a job. It was that kind of thing. I was, to be honest, I was never published in past and present. I might have fantasized it at times, but I never was.
0: So it sounds like this was a group of thinkers uh, who, in a lot of ways, uh, were very heterodox in their approach to thinking about Marxism, thinking about history, and thinking about the approaches to Marxism and history.
1: Yes. In fact, even the interviews I, I have done over the years on them, more, most recently because of the release of the, of the third edition of the book, it's as if people want to take issue with me on the question of their header, on the question of the british marxist historians not buying into the base superstructure i mean close friends of mine who are marxist writers have said well you know i i don't buy the fact that the base superstructure is is so inadequate i mean and i said look I'm, i don't want to spend my i don't want to spend my senior years arguing base superstructure versus social relations of production i just am interested in questions about class struggle and the possibilities of moving beyond the, pl- the place we stand in history now.
0: One thing I wanted to get into, so we we were talking about Eric Hopsquan and his analysis of the Luddites, and I think he provides us with like a different way of looking at the Luddites. Maybe we could talk about some of the other thinkers and how they provide us with different ways to think about different subjects. So for instance, uh, how does Rodney Hilton uh, help us to think in a different lens about, say, an issue like feudalism?
1: Okay, well, let's let's then let's think about the prevailing notions of of what feudalism was about. I mean, I think about when I was in school when I was taught when they talked about feudalism when I was in school. Even when I first got into college, it was the whole question of lord and vassal, meaning you know the aristocratic lord and the knights or sublords that answered to him, right? Or always him and the the greatest medievalist probably of a, of 20th century at least, if the, I don't know if anyone will ever supers- surpass him, was Marc Bloch, the French historian. And he started asking questions about social order that, that extended beyond lord and vassal. But And he was very much influenced by Marx, but he didn't take it to the question of class. He didn't take it to the question of the peasants' contribution to the, to the making of feudal society in quite the way that Rodney Hilton did. So what often happened is that Medieval historians would take the image of feudalism from the ideology of the dominant class, the lordly class. Now what was the what was the dominant ideology? What was the view of the social order? Well, an order of three estates or stations, you know, three strata. Very static kind of analysis. Lords on top, clergy below, peasants on the bottom. And that model, by the way, notice leaves out the leaves out craftsmen and townsfolk and merchants altogether. It was strictly this: lord, clergy, peasant. The lord fights and defends. The clergy prays and speaks, you know, on behalf of God's word. And the peasants, they labor. Now, for Rodney Hilton, it's first of all static, and it's accepting the social order in the very ideology or image that the ruling class would claim exists so he decidedly interested in history from the bottom up really did focus from the beginning first of all on social and economic relations between lords and peasants his phd dissertation had to do with like landed estates in leicestershire one of the english counties something like that i've got a copy of it in my office not here at the house and um but he became ever more fascinated On with this question of how do peasants themselves respond to the exploitation they're enduring? And over time, he goes, he moves from movements to even asking questions about peasant thinking and ideas. And it's really focused, it really becomes focused on the study of the peasant rising or English rising of 1381. This is a really fascinating moment in English history. So, in this peasant rising, there's John Ball and Watt Tyler. John Ball is a, a sort of local priest, you know, he's a priest. Watt Tyler is something of a peasant leader, as I understood it. And this movement is, a, is really arising against the sort of the, the, the... What's the word? The duties, the obligations of peasant serfs to the lords of the land, the manors, so to speak. And what Rodney Hilton, he gets deeply involved in looking well, what is it that the peasants want? okay well yeah they'd like they they'd like to reduce their obligations to the Lords but it's more than that he says it actually gets to the point where they want to bring an end to lordship that's a revolution bring an end to lordship they had in mind the, he said however it no he wasn't he wasn't you know he wasn't going to lie about it he said look they they still had in mind there would be one Lord and that would be the king of England okay somehow you know peasants generally viewed the king as someone who was Very distant, and if you could just get the ear of the king, he might well be able to punish the lords for their poor treatment of their of their peasants. So he got into this. He also interesting a sidebar to that. He also started exploring the whole Robin Hood tradition, the whole idea of a of a bandit, okay, who steals from the rich and gives to the poor, and this you know legends and all that and. Yeah, to get to that, you have to get beyond the the Hollywood versions of it. And he did some work on that. And there's always still a debate about to what extent it was strictly a mythical kind of experience. Or were there actually bandits who were, in fact, stealing from the rich to give to the poor? This is also on the agenda to go back to Hobsbawm with the Luddite idea. Hobsbawm was interested in primitive rebels and social banditry. The degree to which all across Europe, there were, the, or even all throughout the world, there were these bandits who emerged. OK, who are, in, who are criminal by the definition of the law, but their banditry in many ways is an attack on the hierarchy and the oppression of the rich landowner or indeed the rich lord or for that matter, maybe even just, you know, the rich son of a bitch who, who oppresses them.
0: So it's really interesting to me. I feel like there's parallels one could draw uh, between these British Marxist historians and say a figure like um, Howard Zinn, you know, the people's history of the United States. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, when I read Zinn growing up, the one thing that I really took out of reading Zinn was that there's a different way to look at history that can actually sort of expose how, you know, contrary to being uh, completely neutral, a lot of historiography ends up taking the sort of, dominant ideology, the ruling class ideology in terms of its analysis. And it sounds like the British Marxist historians are also kind of pointing that out in a way or exposing that, how uh, a great deal of historiography, uh, contrary to being neutral, actually sort of takes on the view of the dominant culture.
1: Yeah, there's undeniable parallels between the work of the British Marxists and that of Howard Zinn, but they're not the same. It's not the same. Um, Howard Zinn research Howard Zinn was went directly to the question of trying to change the narrative whereas they began their work in terms of historical deep historical research into the struggles of working people and out of that narrative emerges the other thing and i want to be fair to howard zinn um i, I find it fascinating that a, that generations of young people read zinn and somehow feel they're like you know, the fog has been lifted from their eyes about the truth of American history. I didn't read Zinn that way, and I still don't. To me, Howard Zinn does register the degree to which too much of history is suppressed or denied or has been in the past. The problem is that Howard Zinn goes too far in giving power, first of all, to the elites. And he does, and he too often reduces major figures who became even president he reduces them to somehow contributing to the oppression of working people. I, I would ask people to go back and look at his, at his treatment of the likes of Lincoln and the likes of FDR. I mean, that's the, for starters. Okay. I mean, I, I, Zinn generally reduces too much of American history to rising defeat, rising defeat, rising defeat, and fails to see the way in which movements quite often push prominent people who are perhaps sympathetic to the cause into bringing about significant change, progress, if you like. So again, I, I know how young people and people younger than myself feel so enthused by Howard Zinn. I have reservations about the book, People's History. Okay. I just have reservations.
0: No, I can understand that. Um, I guess what I wanted to get at though in in making that comparison was you know, Zinn had that that great quote, you can't be neutral on a moving train. And I want to delve um, into how I think these British Marxist historians that you're analyzing and addressing in this book, I think that they aren't trying to be neutral, but they are trying to be objective, right. if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. Undeniably, they were writing not for, their goal was not to be read by fellow academics. Their goal always was to be read in part, perhaps if they could reach them, by, by middle class and working class people, okay? They really were trying to change, or if you like, recover the real story of English and British history. Now, that's for a start. The next thing is, is that they were deeply involved in politics. My Hell, up until the mid-50s specifically, they were communists. No question about it, okay? After that, they remained on the left. Rodney Hilton was active in the Labor Party thereafter. Uh, Eric Hobson never left the Communist Party. And in fact, in the 19 let me get my years right, in the 1980s um, into the early 90s, he was pretty much the intellectual advisor to a good number of of political figures in in Britain and was a major voice internationally for left history, undeniably so, and was very much involved in conversations and activities with with the Italian Communist Party, for example. E.P. Thompson was never a full time was never really a full time, well, rarely a full time academic. He was a writer and he was an activist. He was very much involved in the campaign for nuclear disarmament during the nineteen fifties in England. He later became one of the founding, really founding members, maybe even a co founding organizer of the of the European Nuclear Disarmament Movement of the nineteen eighties. But it's also the case. That in that those years, he was so fearful of the possibility. Keep in mind, these are World War II veterans, very fearful of the possibility of nuclear Holocaust because of the placement of American missiles in Europe and the Soviets being equally, equally armed to the teeth. And he said to me, I'm I'm he said, I'm not a Marxist any longer. I'm a post-Marxist. He said, the real question right now is how do we how do we avoid annihilating ourselves? The question of class struggle has to. Comes second right now to the question of how do we avoid annihil- annihilating ourselves. Now that question today becomes the question of how do we, which may also take us back to the question of capitalism, is how do we keep from annihilating ourselves by devastating this planet and making it uninhabitable? But at least in this case, whether it has comes from some kind of sort of pandemic, A, global climate change, B, or some other devastating kind of you know, war. I mean, nuclear war is still on is still on the agendas of all too many strategists i think um i mean there is the question of capitalism which has really driven the economic world in which we live and we know the degree to which the kind of competition it incites has is per- imperiling our lives
0: so we can't get into every single um right. uh historian you covered in this book I mean you covered EP Thompson on the making of the English working class you covered Christopher Hill on the English Revolution I think getting to the broader point you know for people that are unfamiliar with these historians uh why would you say that maybe they should be revisiting these historians or taking a look at their work what is their importance? to our situation today? And what do you think their lasting impact is?
1: Well, first, here's the interesting, it's interesting to me because my generation of left historical and social science scholars, and I'm 73 now, okay? So I was an undergraduate in the late 60s. My graduate work was in the first half of the 1970s. My generation, especially of of those of us interested in historical studies, was literally shaped by the work of those historians, th- those of us who had any kind of left inclinations, <laughs> shaped by those historians and the histories we were writing, was to try to do exactly what they were trying to do in the British case. We were trying to reclaim the radical story of the United States and remind working people, no less, you know, as well as others, of what Americans were capable of in those radical moments of the revolution, the labor struggles of the 19th century, the the slave. Uh, the slave struggles and rebellions in the the 19th century. I mean, we can come all the way through. I think that to read, I sort of said at the beginning, but I think it's a case that it could be tough for American readers to read English history. All the tougher today than it might have been years ago because once upon a time, we actually were given doses of English history when we were growing up in American schools. We don't get that now. British history is a, a very... Be like a subject long in decline in American universities. I will tell you that the British Marxist historians are still on syllabi over in Britain. Okay, so there was the so I I and, I and the book is actually selling much better over there than it is now in its third edition over here. But that's the real point. Is what about for Americans? Well, I think for Americans to read this work is to again to attune us to questions of resistance, rebellion, and revolution. And a, a good example of what I can give you is is this. So when I first got into teaching here at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay, and I'm I am professor emeritus now. I retired because of the pandemic. I I remember being assigned to teach out at the local maximum security prison. And I, you know, I was out there and I, I was, you know, I was anxious about going in every day. I mean, these guys ranged from the from, you know, drug dealers to murderers. You know. But I'll never forget how how much I learned from their behavior and their experience. This is interesting. In the in a course of an hour and a half class, they were given, I think it was like a 10-minute smoking break, 15 minutes. And during that break, they would leave the classrooms that this was, they called it the reformatory, but it was a maximum security prison because these these guys were either finishing up high school during the day or they were trying to get an associate of arts degree and they would go back to their cells for the smoke. But I always noticed there were a few guys who stuck around to try to talk to me. And I would say to them, geez, aren't you going to get in trouble because a guard will come by. And... Sometimes they were told get going. Sometimes they were it was ignored. I remember I said to one of the guards, guard was a young guy. I said, so how do you decide when to send someone back? And he goes, well, I'm just I just get tired of telling them to go back. And I thought about that in terms of this wearing down of your masters, this kind of resistance. Now their capacity to resist, most specifically, was limited. But the idea of carving out some time where it was going to be their space and time. And you place the, so to read and I was attuned to that because of what I was reading about peasants and about artisans, about Luddites. I mean, it's this kind of thing. I just think that reading the British historians, however trying it might be because it's British history. Hosbrum wrote about every kind of history imaginable, actually. It might enjoy reading about Latin American history and European history as well. It sort of attunes us. It attunes us to these kinds of struggles at the most Fundamental level. Another reason is that since they all had these literary and musical interests, along the way they actually introduce things of a literary, musical, cultural sort into their writing. And you pick up these very, I mean, it's kind of fun stuff at times. I'm going to go to the most trivial of examples. So I remember reading Hausbaum's book, The Age of Capital. I think it was The Age of Capital. And that of the age, of, I'm pretty sure it was the age of capital. And he talked about the fact that here we are in the in his case, late 20th century, he was writing this. And we look at people who are suntanned and we think of them as having money. They're affluent. They have time to go off to Florida. They have time to go places. And he pointed out that in the 19th and 18th and 17th centuries, if you were an aristocrat or you had money, the last thing you wanted was a suntan, because it might. They might People might assume that you were really a peasant or some kind of outdoor worker. That was of a low sort. So to read them as well will attune you to things past and present, those kind of comparisons. But most importantly, you read them to understand that history is not made by nature. It's not made only by the bourgeoisie, as people in the past referred to capitalists. It's made by struggles, that Marx may really have been That sentence again, the history of all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggles, should be should not be taken to face value. Read the historians who explored the past and more recent present in the terms of that great hypothesis. George Rude once said, I think it was quoting Marx, all history needs to be studied afresh. Well, that's even the case today. There were just
0: two more things I wanted to touch upon briefly, if we could. Uh, one thing I sometimes get from listeners, because I have listeners from all over the political spectrum. And I, I bet you do.
1: You, you, have, you always have a great lineup, which is an unpredictable one often.
0: Sometimes I will have people say to me, you know, J.G., you talk too much about uh, Marxism. Uh, the, the Marxism, it, you know, it doesn't address issues like uh, racism enough. And it's, it's, it's all about class. And I I don't agree with that interpretation. I think um, that's selling Marxism short. So what do you say uh, to people who uh, think, oh, you know, Marxism only addresses class and it doesn't address issues like racism and sexism? Because I think many Marxists do.
1: Well, I mean, I've gone through that question a lot of times and I don't see Marxism as like an all-encompassing answer to anything. It's a hypothesis. It asks us to ask... It compels us to ask certain kinds of questions. Well, yeah, most emphatically, the questions about class. But it's also the case. It's also the case that questions of exploitation or oppression don't come in white forms only. We all know that, okay. So slavery, okay, the oppression of women who are subject to the demands—call it exploitation if you wish, okay—and don't forget the working class of today is. is you know, I'm actually. This is a good, I was thinking about this the other day. Think about this. We've got, we had the end of slavery. We've had the emancipation of women by way of women's suffrage, and then in the 1960s, the uh, equal. We don't have the Equal Rights Amendment, but we had the laws that basically said women should, you know, be accorded equality in the fullest sense. Even if it, again, in practice, it may not be there. But the fact is, if you think about it today, maybe Marxists question about the history of all history existing society, history of class struggle becomes all the more relevant today because we now have achieved or are on the way to the most diverse working class in history. And those folks, the, the more they can develop solidarity and recognize their shared interests, the better off we will all be. Now, Marx doesn't answer all the questions. He didn't pose all the questions, but it gives us, it gives historians a place to start, not a place to finish. And I think that's that's why it matters. Okay. And by the way, the work, there are a lot of great women Marxist historians. I mean, Sheila Robotham from England was just fabulous work, a scholar, and others like her. And they and by the way, in the 19th century, the mistake the British Marxists made is that they didn't spend time in the 19th century attending very much to women's history, which was the history of the working class. How do you understand the history of the working class if you don't include the women who worked at home and outside the home.
0: Also, I know this is going to be a little bit inside baseball, but this is how I wanted to end the episode. Uh, I noticed in the preface, uh, you talk about Anthony Giddens um, helping oh, yeah. out with the book. Right. And I was interested in that because I think Giddens is a rather interesting thinker. I know a lot of people on the left will say, oh, he became too associated with the third way and knew right. he but was the, he, he was
1: the guru of the third way.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I think yeah. he he has uh, important contributions, and I was wondering how uh, he Well, here, it.
1: It's interesting. You should ask. Okay, first of all, let me make it clear to everyone listening that I really do owe Tony Giddens. I I mean, I owe him. So I, it's, if people pick up the book, they'll see the story of how the book came to be written, which is actually very. It's all serendipity after serendipity after serendipity. Okay, I trained as a Latin American sc- study, st- study in Latin American studies. Okay. I mean, now a lot of people don't even realize I was doing British Marxist historiography because of my work on Thomas Paine and Franklin Roosevelt and all that kind of stuff. Well, I began in Latin American studies and it was because of the British Marxist historians that I came to understand Latin American landlord and peasant struggles all the more effectively. And I explain this in the book, in the early part of the book. Well, to make the long story short, I ended up writing... A paper one summer when I was in a seminar group at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. It was, I think, 1981. And, when I, and at the end of the seminar, the fellow who had organized the seminar for the National Endowment for the Humanities, William Sewell Jr., Bill said to me, "You know, this paper is not enough. And I thought, uh-oh, he doesn't like it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you really should turn it into a book. And believe me, having been a Latin American, it's the last thing I ever thought about was writing a book about British Marxist historians as my first book. Well, I took the paper and I came back to Green Bay, and I'm in the library, and I'm looking at the shelves, and there was this shelves of new books, and I noticed this series of books, all had, if you like, an executive editor behind it. It was Macmillan was the publisher, and they were they were called Theoretical Traditions in the Social Sciences. And I thought, geez, you know, I I actually trained in history, political science, and sociology. And I wanted social scientists to read history. So I took the paper and I sent it to Giddens. And I said, what do you think of this paper? I'm going to try to get it published. And he wrote back to me and told me, my editor at Macmillan is going to send you a book contract. This would be a great book for the series. Turned out, Giddens, when I finished the book, contacted me and said, I'm leaving Macmillan. And other publishers offered me my own imprint. There's a publishing house called Polity Press, which actually was set up so that Anthony Giddens would have control literally of an entire publishing operation. And then it eventually became the director of the London School of Economics. I mean, I owe Giddens a lot. He recognized the importance of the work. I did some other books with Polity Press. One of them was on E.P. Thompson himself. Um, and then I edited a series of books for the press as well, but I, I owe Giddens a lot. I really do. Now his argument really was attuned to this question of history. I think his great book is titled, um, is is a book about Marx, Weber and Durkheim. It's great book, but what Giddens was trying to get away from was that sociology had to be either all structuralist or all humanist. And it, to him, the, one had to th- think in terms of structure and agency. Well, I considered that a formal, too formalistic for my liking, perhaps, but a formalistic version of what these British historians were trying to do, overcome the structure, the, the static character of the base in a base superstructure model, but didn't want to reduce it to merely how do you feel today or you know those kinds of things. It was how, does, how, do, how do working people in whatever moment in history respond to the extraction from them of their productive energies and so i think giddens you know i think he had a certain affection for these historians his real connections were to Jurgen habermas and other thinkers in the european tradition
0: so in closing since you mentioned your work on thomas Paine and fdr uh how would you view your work on the british marxist historians in relation to your later work on looking at Thomas Paine and FDR, what's the sort of connective tissue?
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I would tell anyone, and I hope they want to go out and get copies of both my Thomas Paine and the Promise of America book, and the Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, that those two books were directly shaped by what I learned from the British Marxists. They are not studies in great men. They are studies in the struggles in American history to shape American history. And it's a dial to use a Marxian term, it's a dialectical process. Okay. Here's the other thing. When I had finished the work on the British Marxist historians and I remained friends with them, each one of them, in their own, at their own moment, because this is on -on one-on-one basis, it said to me, Don't don't waste your time anymore studying British Marxists or write some American history. Go out and and Thomas Paine was my childhood hero. It was first on my list. The other thing was that if you read The Making of the English Working Class, the entire first third of the book, it seems, it's a 900-page book. That's the E.P. Thompson book, right? The E.P. Thompson book, Making of the English Working Class, is very much shaped by Thomas Paine's work, The Rights of Man, that he wrote during the course of the of the English French Revolution while the English working class and middle class were struggling to secure some democratic rights. So it's a... Edward and I had some real intimate sort of conversations where he was pushing me towards doing my Thomas Paine stuff. In fact, I'll just tell you how the Thomas Paine book came to be. Edward Thompson was supposed to write the foreword to a book I was co-editing with Paul Buell and Mary Jo Buell titled The American Radical. Eric Foner, who had done a re, done a great book on Thomas Paine and the American Revolution, was supposed to write the chapter on Thomas Paine. I was going to write just the afterward about how we need to recover the radical story of America. Edward died. He was going to write the forward. Edward died. Eric said, "To make the long story short, would you like me to step in to write the forward?" You write the Thomas Paine because he knew of my affection for Paine, and I had never written on Thomas Paine. I'd never written on American history other than Reagan for Reagan, Th- a book on Reagan and Thatcher. So that opened the door to my moving into the Thomas Paine work that I did.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to thank you again, Harvey Cave, for coming on Parallax Views, and I hope everyone picks up the book, The British Marxist Historians. It's JJ, I want to ask brief. you a question. Interesting
1: question. Are, do, do you? I only think of us as as recording, vo- you know, or audio. Are you recording audio and video? I am recording audio and video. Uh, the video
0: usually comes out from a Patreon when I can get a chance to.
1: Oh, okay. Because I, I, today I was looking for you on uh, YouTube. Okay, thinking maybe it moved on to YouTube. And there's some other character who's got a parallax views. How dare that other person? Ah.
0: I need yeah. to look into that. <laughs> yeah,
1: do that. Do that. Down with that other person's.
0: <laughs> well, thanks again, Harvey. Uh, Thank I love you. to have you back on in the future.
1: I hope to see you again soon.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Harvey J. K. And that you'll check out the latest edition of his 1984 book, The British Marxist Historians. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Parallax Views. One more time, that's patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with to J.J. Views. To Parallax Views with Jeralax Michael. Jeralax Michael. Jeralax. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom.